Uh, it's great to be here, uh, to be back at the University of Chicago. It's especially great um, to be here with uh, John Schumann, who is my uh, closest friend from college, in fact, and who has the distinction of being the person who brought me to my first concentration camp. Uh, so I don't know if that means that he was the inspiration for A Problem From Hell, but he's certainly been an incredibly important force in my life, um, and you're very lucky to have him here um, at the University of Chicago. Um, this talk is billed um, a little more specifically than, than, um, than some that I've given in the past. I mean, normally I speak either about, you know, American responses to genocide or about American foreign policy and the war on terrorism. Um, but the title of this talk is, uh, as I recall, American Foreign Policy and Amnesia, uh, The Case of Iraq. Uh, before I get to discussing just one uh, specific case in which I think America's amnesia or its short-term memory and its forward-looking approach is undermining its strategic interests and its moral standing, which will be uh, what I will try to show or argue. Um, I want to talk a little bit about American foreign policy and morality uh, more generally. Um, this is an administration that is really quite uh, different than any of its predecessors in its invocation of liberty and morality and freedom uh, and human dignity uh, in justifying foreign policies, some of which are carried out for other purposes, some of which uh, are seen by members of the administration to be explicitly devoted to liberty, dignity, freedom, and so on. Um, President Bush's national security strategy doctrine is an interesting document if, if, if I don't know if any of you have looked out at it, but it shows a kind of shift in this administration from a classical realist disposition to intervene, for instance, only in pursuit of economic and security interests to uh, something bordering on a liberation theology um, about the role of American power in promoting democracy and freedom around the world. Uh, this national security strategy document doctrine uh, uses the phrase human rights five times, human dignity nine times, liberty 11 times, democracy 13 times, and freedom which is the favorite formulation, 46 times. You will not find a previous president's national security strategy uh, doctrine that is so grounded, again, in a commitment um, to the promotion of freedom, uh, at least rhetorically. Um, president Bush also gave a, um, a landmark speech um, last uh, autumn, which I'm going to read a portion of because I think it's um, a, a, a pretty interesting moment in American foreign policy history. And this was a speech which has become known as the Age of Liberty speech. And here he uses the phrase freedom 40 times, liberty 18 times. Um, but what he says in this speech, and you, you, some of you will remember at least portions of it, is he says, some skeptics of democracy assert that the traditions of Islam are inhospitable to representative government. This cultural condescension, as Ronald Reagan termed it, has a long history. After the Japanese surrender in 1945, a so-called Japan expert asserted that democracy in that former empire would, quote, never work. Another observer declared the prospects for democracy in post-Hitler Germany are, declared that the, those prospects were, and I quote, he quotes, most uncertain at best. He made that claim in 1957. Time after time, observers have questioned whether this country or that people or this group are ready for democracy as if freedom were a prize you win for meeting our own Western standards of progress. It should be clear to all that Islam, the faith of one-fifth of humanity, is consistent with democratic rule. 
Turkey, Indonesia, Senegal, Albania, Sierra Leone. More than half of all the Muslims in the world live in freedom under democratically constituted governments. They succeed in democratic societies not in spite of their faith, Bush said, but because of it. And here's the part of the speech that's already kind of an interesting formulation of, of uh, what Islam can be and, and the possibility for democratization, very ambitious, of course. But he also includes something quite unusual, and this I'll come to toward the later part of the talk, um, which is an implicit acknowledgement of past faux pas or past wrongdoing. Uh, not past immorality exactly, but past wrongdoing. He goes on to say, 60 years of Western nations excusing and accommodating the lack of freedom in the Middle East did nothing to make us safe, because in the long run, stability cannot be purchased at the expense of liberty. So this is kind of a big deal. Acknowledging that we've been coddling dictators in the Middle East for a long time, even if he doesn't say 60 years of America excusing and accommodating the lack of freedom, but you know, frames it in terms of Western nations. Um, and then he says, you know, stability cannot be purchased at the expense of liberty. He goes on to say, as long as the Middle East remains a place where freedom does not flourish, it will remain a place of stagnation, resentment, and violence ready for export. So uh, there's a lot of language, a lot of talk uh, about freedom and dignity and rights, and even although he avoids, tends to avoid the language of human rights because it invokes international law and international, the sort of corpus of human rights, which include economic and social rights, um, which are not uh, American favorites, never have been. We've been much more committed to a civil and political rights model, which are freedom of speech and religion and, and due process and the like, um, again, rhetorically. Um, but uh, in this speech, I think what you do see is, and I, and I think one has to take seriously, is to an extent rhetorical cover for policies carried out for other means, for traditional means. There's no question that this is how you would spin whatever you're doing, no matter why you were doing it. But there is actually something else going on in Washington now, which is that somewhere uh, in the uh, corridors of power, uh, there is a recognition that uh, among the 19 hijackers uh, on 9-11, uh, all but one uh, came from American allies. They came from Egypt and Saudi Arabia. None came from Axis of Evil countries, in fact. Um, that is, that America's backing of abusive regimes has in fact created resentments that in turn do come back and, and haunt us in a variety of ways. There's also a recognition that actually um, human rights practices, although again that wouldn't be the language, or freedom or democratization, um, that there's a decent correlation between lack of freedom and nuclear proliferation as one sees in, in, in Pakistan and in North Korea uh, and uh, elsewhere. So all along, you know, American foreign policy has been um, predicated on an unspoken, sometimes spoken, belief that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or even the logic that he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. But now that these asymmetric tools uh, of warfare are available to people, and, and the, the model for what war is is no longer conventional armies, um, there is fear, actually, in, in Washington that these kinds of policies are unsustainable. Um, now again, this isn't to, to say that you've seen policies acted upon in the wake of this conversion, some kind of epiphany. It's nothing like that. We still um, have been utterly mute about atrocities carried out, for instance, by Uzbekistan, where 
three individuals uh, two months ago were boiled to death uh, by the government there, and we're using Uzbekistan's bases and, and not, of course, mentioning those horrors. Chechnya, of course, uh, in our interest in keeping um, uh, Russia stable and, and Putin on side in the war on terrorism, uh, we have been uh, utterly reticent about. And of course, places like Zimbabwe or Darfur, Sudan, which maybe we can talk about in, in the question period, um, reveal that this kind of uh, epiphany, even if it exists, leaves out certain segments of the planet. Because unless you matter, because you might become a terrorist, you don't intrinsically matter exactly. Now, much of what I'm saying about the Bush administration's foreign policy, number one, is true of prior administrations, and number two is true of most states. States are present and exist in order to advance the needs of their own citizens. And just about everywhere on the earth, those needs are defined in terms of security and economic gains. They're not defined in terms of you know, foreign aid to distant strangers or amelioration of atrocity uh, or risking of domestic life to fend off foreign terror. Only when the foreign terror, again, is seen to be potentially coming home to roost is one uh, are states generally uh, willing to make sacrifices. So much of what I'm describing um, is structural. But I did want to point out right from the start that the traditional interests and values dichotomy that has defined American foreign policy is coming under scrutiny in the wake of 9-11 in a way that it hasn't uh, before. Again. Uh, I'm going to talk about why, uh, when talking about amnesia, why it's very, very difficult to act upon even the recognition that backing dictators is a bad policy. So I'm going to talk about that now. But, but I do want to, want to um, sort of at least put forth the idea that the realist framework, um, which has had us intervening only on behalf of that which is vital to us, and by intervening, I mean generally not just militarily, diplomatically, economically, and so on, but the foreign policy is strictly speaking about us to a broader conception now that may be uh, doubly dangerous. We can, we can talk about that. Now, there are several reasons that acting upon this recognition, even if people were sincere, that why that would be difficult. Um, one set of reasons is, is structural. Um, I mean, the reality is uh, that politicians operate on the basis of election cycles. Um, it is very difficult for them to place the important above the urgent. Uh, so the temptation to privilege stability in a distant place over liberty is always, uh, I think, paramount and overly tempting and has been throughout, again, American history. Um, victims, of course, uh, of uh, foreign governments and, and, uh, and even victims of our interventions and our uh, wars abroad, of course, don't vote in this country. So there is no political cost, in fact, uh, or at least no m immediate political cost uh, to doing the wrong thing or to sidelining human rights in consideration of foreign policy. Um, but there is a perceived gain to something quite vital, namely uh, U.S. security. And again, it's only because that gain is, is now being questioned uh, that, that this conversation is even, even possible. Now, one of the things that's amazing about the American democracy, uh, constitutional democracy at home, is that the framers of our Constitution recognized uh, that they couldn't trust themselves, that we can't trust ourselves, that men are, and women, we're fallen people, and that we will always privilege the urgent over the important and the self over the other. And that's why they built in and embedded a Bill of Rights into the Constitution and in the early 19th century anointed uh, the Supreme Court to begin applying that Bill of Rights to legislation that actually would uh, terrorize uh, 
minorities in this country or people who don't have the votes or the money to make democracy work on their behalf. This kind of check, you know, the Supreme Court, the independent judiciary, three branches of government, local, state, federal government, in terms of three tiers of government, civil society, the media, all those checks are available at home, but they don't really exist abroad. It is really up to us and our policymakers to make ourselves accountable to the Congress, uh, hopefully, occasionally, but very, very rarely uh, for foreign policy, certainly not for sins of omission, and very rarely for the kinds of structural relationships that have been longstanding, um, such as, for instance, our support um, and largely uncritical support of, of Israel, uh, such as our, uh, again, use of foreign bases at the expense of policies of silence, um, such as our dependence on Saudi Arabia. These are policies that don't come up under constant review. They are inherited from one administration to the next. Um, and while there is international law that is meant to be a check on American power abroad and meant to kind of discipline us, of course, we have culturally um, uh, great difficulty with being um, uh, restricted by foreigners or foreign, uh, what are seen to be foreign treaties, even those that we ourselves have drafted. Um, so at home, there's something of a mobilization gap. Um, you have human rights groups now who are doing a terrific job, I think, uh, uh, ever better, ever more rigorous job documenting uh, abuses carried out uh, abroad. Take the Red Cross report from Abu Ghraib. Um, and maybe we can debate whether that report should have been made public sooner. Um, take Human Rights Watch's reporting now that they're doing on rendition, which is one of the policies the Bush administration has used and I think will use ever more now that its own uh, soldiers and police um, uh, brutality is, is, has come under scrutiny. Rendition is a policy where you just, you have someone in your custody, you don't want to torture him because you don't want to bear the moral hazard or, or have to face the legal scrutiny or because you are against torture even. Um, but you really want the information, and you kind of still believe that torture might be the best way to get it out of them. So you send the individual to a country where torture is uh, common practice, like Syria, like Pakistan, uh, Egypt, and other places. Human Rights Watch is what they've done is actually tracked people who have been, uh, in a sense, extradited to these countries and tried to follow up on their fates so as to expose the extent to which this has become a common practice. And they're just in the midst of putting out a report like this. So you've got again, maybe belatedly and not, not with, with um, instant sophistication, but there are means now for documenting abuses that are carried out abroad by foreign governments and by proxies uh, of this country and, of course, by U.S. Uh, personnel. But what is missing domestically is the ability to translate um, that reporting and, and maybe even some of our outrage into uh, a political constituency that makes itself heard and felt in Washington. So there's still a mobilization gap, and that is a structural problem uh, for the integration of human rights. Uh, again, even with the kind of rhetorical support from above for merging uh, values and interests. There's the other problem, of course, is that after, and I'll get to this in the discussion of amnesia, but after years of, um, of considering our interests as separate from human rights and, and, and uh, American values, as they're, as they're called, um, there's great suspicion. I mean, there's, there's, uh, it is very difficult even in the moment where we, in an a la carte way, decide to bring forth uh, principle, there's great suspicion on the basis of past, past behavior. Um, and uh, some of the international institutions, of course, that the United States might be, at some point anyway, tempted to work, work through and work within, 
Um, one, we don't, again, culturally have uh, a great, great uh, warm feelings for international institutions. Um, but two, when we do, those institutions are often seen to be just covers for American objectives, uh, you know, again, under, under international cover. And so the Security Council, of course, is an example of that. And the UN, when it sent a team into Iraq uh, just after the, the war, what looked like the end of the war, um, it found out, uh, unfortunately, the hard way, experiencing its own version of 9-11 uh, with the UN bombing, which, which cost the UN its, its uh, single greatest light, uh, Sergio Vera de Mello. So there is a kind of uh, uh, a guilt uh, by association uh, that international institutions experience, um, and there is a guilt, uh, a perceived guilt, on the part of the United States when it does act and when it does come wanting to talk about principle, as in fact it is doing now when it comes to Sudan, Darfur, Sudan, but there's a great suspicion that there must be oil in Darfur or that it must be about actually trying to press Khartoum by other means on the terrorism front. So again, these are sort of uh, some of the structural forces that I think uh, this administration uh, would, would, would have to, if it were serious, uh, in merging values and interests would have to take into account. A couple other points before I, again, focus on amnesia and specifically on Iraq. Uh, the unilateralism of this administration is, um, builds on a very long tradition uh, of unilateralism. This is in addition to these structural forces, there is something different about the Bush administration that makes it that much more difficult to speak in the name of universals. Um, but American exceptionalism has a long tradition. What makes this administration different and more unilateral and thus, and thus seen to be very illegitimate to speak in the name of international principles like human rights and even basic dignity, which should be both a national principle and an international principle, is what you might call kind of gratuitous unilateralism. It's like a different level of unilateralism, I think, than, than we've seen before. Um, so take, for instance, the International Criminal Court, which is the most um, often oft-cited example of, of Bush's unilateralism. Bush, as we know, unsigned uh, the treaty, the Rome Treaty, which had been signed by President Clinton in the 11th hour of his administration. President Clinton was not for the International Criminal Court, was not terribly helpful uh, in, uh, in the negotiations up until that point where the Rome Treaty came into being. Um, he signed it, and it's a big question in my mind as to whether he would have signed the treaty if uh, Gore had actually won the election. In some ways, it was a kind of Clintonian you know, uh, sort of kiss off or something in the, in the tail end of his, of his uh, or kiss perhaps, uh, in the tail end of his uh, presidency. And I'd be very curious if he would have done the same thing and stuck Gore with the issue of whether to send this treaty to the Senate for ratification. President Clinton did say that he, had, he himself would not urge the Senate to take it up and to debate ratification. So let's be clear, the, Bush, the Clinton administration also had no interest actually in integrating itself within this international institution. So enter Bush. Uh, Bush delegates John Bolton um, to uh, work the international institutions uh, uh, portfolio. John Bolton despises international institutions. John Bolton takes White out, literally, in a historic day that he calls the greatest day in his life, and whites out President Clinton's signature on the treaty, uh, the first time that we had unsigned uh, a, a treaty, uh, at least in this brash a manner. Uh, but more than that, what we start doing is we start actually negotiating bilaterally uh, with countries that had signed the International Criminal Court Treaty, uh, threatening to suspend aid to them if they wouldn't guarantee that Americans would, would, would be protected from the court's jurisdiction. Now, this may sound fine, um, because why not protect the Americans? We have such a robust court martial system that just catches all the abuses as they happen. 
Uh, that was the line that I actually would have said with a straight face uh, until quite recently. Um, but even leaving that aside, one of the other reasons, uh, leaving the porousness of the military justice system aside, one of the other reasons that uh, this is bad practice is, of course, what you're asking nascent democracies, many of them, to do is to violate international law. You actually can't do that, sign an, a, a, a treaty, and then turn around and sign a bilateral agreement exempting one party. It's, it's sort of not exactly the right signal to send. But more strikingly, you have countries who've stood up and actually refused to sign uh, these uh, treaties on the grounds uh, that they want to play um, by international law. And what the Bush administration has done is actually cut off military aid to two countries that, two of the few countries who have given us troops uh, for the war in Iraq. So we've actually suspended military aid on ideological grounds or on, you could argue, on, on uh, you know, unilateral grounds thereby, arguably anyway, undermining uh, the efforts and, and even the security on the ground in Iraq. Um, other countries are aiding, that have been, had aid cut off, uh, Trinidad uh, and, and Tobago, aiding our drug interdiction efforts. Colombia, Ecuador, Croatia, countries, you know, again, uh, uh, borderline countries in terms of uh, security. Now, whatever you think of military aid, again, holding aid uh, deciding where aid should be uh, uh, deployed and should be spent should be made surely on the basis of uh, something other than who is willing to violate international law. Um, the other aspect of this unilateralism uh, is uh, that I think may, may surprise you, certainly surprises me every time I go back and look at it, is something known as the Hague Invasion Clause, which um, is part of the U.S. Service Members Protection Act, which was passed last year, 2002 actually now, uh, in the Congress, but with uh, strong Bush uh, leadership. And this is a clause that actually authorizes U.S. forces to use all necessary measures, it's in quotes, all necessary measures uh, to invade the Netherlands, the Netherlands uh, to liberate U.S. forces who end up in custody in The Hague. So we actually have as a piece of standing law in this country an authorization to make war uh, on Holland. Again, <laughs> if you take the values interests framework and the desire to talk more about freedom and, and, and the desire to speak in the name of principles that are more universal, these kinds of public diplomacy gaffes, which buy you almost nothing when it comes to actual security, um, I think are a very good example of, of where this administration takes American exceptionalism and, and, and takes it to a, a new place. Let me get now um, to uh, the, the sort of where, where I'd like to, to place the emphasis and maybe focus some of the discussion, and that is the ahistoricism of this country um, when it comes uh, to its foreign policy making, and, and just focus on the extent to which that, even if we could do away with unilateralism tomorrow and sign on to the International Criminal Court and go and play in Kyoto and landmines and you know child soldiers and, and the torture convention, even if we just showed up in these ways and we, 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 we constrained ourselves uh, in the United Nations in ways that people hadn't seen before and, and, and sort of worked behind the scenes to get what we want ahead of time and used our leverage again, but, 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 but recognizing that enforceable rules of the road in international institutions are in our interest. If we had that, that epiphany, which we, I think needs to be an epiphany that accompanies any recognition um, that our security is best enabled with a more democratized world. I think we also have to recognize that international institutions are actually in our long-term interest. But even if we had that, there's something else in, foreign in American foreign policy 
not unique to the United States, but much more felt because uh, it is a, a quality, in this instance, associated with the, the most powerful superpower in the history of mankind. Um, and that is this amnesia, this, this forward-looking thrust um, that has us changing our minds, um, sometimes usefully, I mean, often constructively, but never acknowledging that what we might have done the day before uh, was mistaken. So I, I again, uh, mentioned that in, in the title of the talk, anyway, that I would try to talk about, uh, about Iraq in this regard. Um, you could look at American amnesia when it comes to Iraq um, in a few areas. One, you could say, gosh, why didn't we study the British experience just a little longer uh, before we uh, decided to send um, our men and women into war uh, in a dangerous place? I mean, just about any place you make war on becomes a dangerous place. Um, but there is actually... Uh, some 30 years of quagmire to draw upon um, that wouldn't require, you know, going too far afield, um, uh, even in terms of geography and in terms of ethnic composition, to try to get some feel, um, at least for potential challenges that may lie down the road. This isn't to overlearn from history and to fight the last war, but it is perhaps to come to war slightly better prepared for some of the resistance that you might encounter. So that's one example of amnesia, which, which was very uh, counterproductive. But often the amnesia that I'm talking about is uh, of a more of a, a, a kind of, of a moral nature, where we have either gotten involved um, abroad, let's say in an assassination or a covert operation, and we have undermined uh, some kind of uh, fabric uh, in a way that suits our interests in the moment, that may even uh, suit the interests of, uh, of people uh, in the country in question, in the short term or the medium term, whatever. But we get involved and we walk away, or we get involved and we stay. But we get involved and we make a mark on people's consciousness and on their impression of who we are and what we stand for. Um, so take, for instance, um, the 1980s. And when I talk of intervention, I'm usually talking not just about military, but about, again, a variety of forms of intervention. In the 80s, because Iran was the greater enemy in the neighborhood, the United States, under the Reagan administration, was aligned with Iraq loosely. Uh, in 1984, Iraq was taken off uh, the sponsor of terrorism uh, list, and we reopened diplomatic relations. We began a credit program uh, to his regime where we gave him $500 million a year in credits to buy American farm products, $500 million to buy uh, uh, American manufactured goods, and um, Don Rumsfeld began visiting. Uh, uh, Dick Cheney also had, had uh, meetings when he was on Capitol Hill with, with uh, people in this administration. You remember Tariq Aziz, of course, uh, spent a lot of time in Washington in those days. Now, Iran, again, in our worldview at the time, was the greater enemy in the neighborhood. And the, and the view in Washington was Iran could not, we could not afford to allow Iran to win the war with Iraq, which went on from, from, uh, for the first uh, eight years of the 1980s. Um, but one of the things that Saddam does, of course, is he uses chemical weapons, uh, first against the Iranians, and, and because of the Reagan administration's position, Reagan goes to the Security Council, stops the Security Council from issuing uh, a denunciation of the chemical weapons use. The United States actually kills, I think it's seven or eight resolutions that came up over the course of that eight years to denounce chemical weapons use. In 1988, when Saddam turned those chemical weapons uh, against Kurdish uh, civilians and uh, some Kurdish fighters, um, the Reagan administration response was the same. Uh, it was to avoid uh, denunciation when 5,000 people were killed in Halabja, which was uh, sort of Kurdistan's Hiroshima, they like to say, 
Um, uh, the response of the, the Reagan administration, including Colin Powell again, um, Anton Rumsfeld, was to blame the Iranians when internal cable traffic reveals that our intelligence assets on the ground uh, knew full well uh, that it had been uh, the Iraqis who carried out um, the attacks. So we had a, a public posture that abetted, uh, and, and indeed we were sharing intelligence as well as money, with a regime that was committing genocide. Okay, now, I don't know if any of you have read my book, I'm against that. <laughs> I'm against genocide and I'm against backing regimes that are carrying it out. But what I'm talking about here is something a little bit different. Um, that was bad, um, you know, see page 250 or whatever. But one of the questions one has to ask is once you've done that, then what? Okay, and once you've changed your mind, because Saddam, of course, became a threat to U.S. interests, uh, you know, the Iranians, uh, the Iranian threat kind of faded. Saddam began, began giving speeches threatening to burn Israel. He invaded Kuwait. Our posture toward Iraq changed. We cut off those credits uh, eventually, having doubled them, I should say, from 500 million to a billion per package, so two billion overall, uh, the year following the chemical weapons attacks. I mean, the, the chemical weapons attacks were so irrelevant to the conduct of our foreign policy. We didn't double our aid because of the chemical weapons attacks, but we didn't uh, you know, factor them in and thinking about policy. So flash forward then, uh, you go to war, uh, the, you, ha you wage the Gulf War. At that point, the fact that he used chemical weapons against his own people was not the catchphrase that it has become, but certainly Saddam's brutality, mainly that committed in, in Kuwait, uh, was invoked to justify uh, the war because when it, it is true in this country that the arguments that resonate most with Americans are the moral arguments. Even if you need to be able to ground an intervention in security or, or economic terms, uh, the arguments that seem to appeal uh, most in the heartland, or at least up until this Iraq war, uh, were arguments about you know, Saddam killing Kuwaiti babies and, and, and the kind that we all remember. So then we, ha we fight the Gulf War and we call upon the Shiites and the Kurds to rise up and they rise up and they actually do some damage. They take over Basra uh, in the south and a number of Kurdish cities uh, in the north and they're waiting for us to come and we don't come and they're crushed and murdered. And again, we move on, uh, you know, administrations change, we begin a policy where we actually do manage to repatriate Kurds and create a no-fly zone in the north which creates a, a quasi-autonomous state that is a little bit at Saddam's mercy for the next uh, decade, but nonetheless gives Kurds some experience uh, in self-government. Um, but there's never a public acknowledgement that we called upon these people to rise up, certainly not an apology, no form, of course, of prospective reparation. Um, what ends up happening is we are, of course, focused on Saddam Hussein and the threat that we fear he is becoming to Israel and to the United States. Fair enough to monitor the threat, of course, that he is becoming, but again, to act as though history isn't happening, these things kind of add up uh, over time. So then the war uh, that we just experienced and are experiencing occurs, and the war, of course, is justified on several grounds. First, on the grounds of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, next, on the grounds of an Al-Qaeda terrorist connection. Uh, thirdly, uh, in order to sort of create a magnet for democracy in the Middle East and for st stabilization, uh, which is deemed to be in the interest of long-term U.S. security. And then fourthly, of course, this is a man who gassed his own people, period. This is a man who used chemical weapons against Kurds uh, in northern Iraq back in 1988. So now we have a problem because, of course, uh, we don't have weapons of mass destruction. 
they haven't been found. They're not going to be found. Uh, we have had no uh, public acknowledgement that a mistake was made uh, by any of our leaders. Uh, Powell has come the closest to just sort of saying, I don't think they're going to show up. But he hasn't said or gone to anybody to whom that argument was made and tried to reckon with uh, the perceived deception. So instead what we have is a shift in language where we now say we've gone from saying there were weapons to then a few months later saying that there were programs to then saying there weren't weapons, there weren't programs, but there were intentions. And then to saying there were, um, as Bush put it, weapons of mass destruction program activities. <laughs> to then saying that there were a history of intentions. So not even intentions, but a history of intentions. Now, again, whatever one thinks about the merits of that argument, and, and uh, the reality is they, there are no weapons. I mean, I can't believe there are no chemical weapons. It's shocking, considering how many he used against the Kurds. So, but we have a problem. We made a, an argument for war on the basis of a set of facts that haven't come to bear. And yet, instead of acknowledging it, we are sort of shifting the language and claiming retrospectively a, a different set of justifications. The terrorist connection, obviously, has been one created by the war in Iraq. And again, no acknowledgment, just a wishful desire to sort of push ahead and deal tactically, of course, we are busy dealing tactically with the problems of the day. Um, we've experienced this, I think, really graphically, this forward-looking approach in the last couple of weeks um, with the torture revelations. Now, um, first you see institutionally a desire to, you know, make these torture revelations go away. Uh, the report, of course, was filed uh, many months ago, didn't make its way up the chain of command as something of this gravity should. Even just from Karl Rove's perspective, this is something that should rive, rise, even if not, you know, if, you, if, you, if, if human rights are marginal or if torture is somehow going to be marginal in administration, the politics of this are such that this should have risen. Um, but then, most notably, and I just went on the web, I've got all these pieces of paper today because I was on the web trying to find evidence of, of what, how Bush's language in regard to justifying the war in Iraq had changed, um, and unfortunately it hasn't. CBS broadcast uh, the photographs of Iraqi prisoner uh, abuse, and um, Cy Hirsch put up on uh, the website, the New Yorker website, you know, the graphic details, and yet, after that, on April 23rd, um, President Bush said in a speech, we acted and there are no longer mass graves and torture rooms and rape rooms in Iraq. That's a speech on April 23rd. On April 30th, at the, in the Rose Garden, uh, he's talking about the speech that he gave on the carrier. Again, a year ago he said, I did give the speech from the carrier saying that we had achieved an important objective, that we'd accomplished a mission, which was the removal of Saddam Hussein. And as a result, there are no longer torture chambers or rape rooms or mass graves in Iraq. This is a week after the story broke. Um, so again, our, our, our sensitivity um, now to understanding the ways in which our claims are heard, they are uh, absorbed, they are tallied over time, and there is an utter lack of, uh, of legitimacy and, and, and stock taking on the basis of past pledges. Other mistakes uh, that we've made, uh, that we've shifted gears on appropriately, again, we don't acknowledge we shift, but we don't announce a shift. So we, you know, advocated a policy of holistic debathification. So getting rid of anybody affiliated with the bath party. Well, whoops, turns out no one's left. <laughs> so, not quite, but, but that policy had to be revised about a month ago. And again, instead of sort of saying, consulting with the governing council and saying, here's what we did and here's why we did it, and, or with other people who are seen to be more legitimate, such as the clerics and so on, 
We just push ahead. Make a change, push ahead. Never go back, never acknowledge. Now, let me just talk more generally and not, and not talk about Iraq and, and then close and talk to Shu here. Um, uh, the, the reasons for not acknowledging are obvious. Uh, one, and, and if I could broaden it from Iraq, uh, in most cases of commissions of harms, moral harms, or errors, and Vietnam is an example of one that is both, both an error, seemed to be a strategic error, and one that cost us dearly, and something that, of course, cost uh, millions of, of Vietnamese. But on, on many, many cases, and Vietnam may be the exception, there is no historical consensus that something was wrong. So what you get is still the same debates that might have been played out about whether to respond to the Rwandan genocide or whether to go to war uh, uh, in Iraq or whether to overthrow Allende in the 70s, that some of those debates actually haven't been settled uh, within an administration. So to acknowledge publicly requires assuming a consensus that, that, that doesn't actually exist. Um, secondly, there's just a real institutional loyalty, even across administrations, a remarkably nonpartisan loyalty uh, that cuts across. So even if Kerry wins, it's going to be very interesting now because our, our legitimacy has, has sunk so low. But in past administrations and turnovers, you don't see someone coming in and deciding to kind of take responsibility for what was done before or to stock take or to apologize for something that's done by a predecessor as a way of kind of ushering in something new, partly because the civil service and the foreign service, of course, stay the same, but also it's just not done. It's culture. Um, thirdly, uh, of course, there's now a great fear of, of litigation and class action lawsuits. There are global courtrooms. So the lawyers are at your elbow or at your, you know, your side the whole time saying, no, whatever you do, don't acknowledge mistake or harm or even involvement. So you get totally obvious instances where we've been involved in a covert or overt way, and we literally pretend, uh, uh, you know, again, that, that we had no presence whatsoever. Um, fourthly, and I think this may be the most important, by acknowledging responsibility uh, or error, you actually are potentially culturally um, and societally creating a constraint on future behavior that no policymaker really wants to impose upon himself. So if you do, for instance, reckon with some of the Cold War interventions in Latin America or in Africa or whatever, um, the implication is, you know, we, we're not doing those kinds of operations again. I mean, if you do acknowledge, if you were to pay compensation, if you were to, you know, create a truth commission, whatever it is that one wanted to do or whatever it is people in these countries needed to do, um, you would potentially uh, be, you know, on a slippery slope, at least that's the argument, that you would actually, then people would sort of impose the standard you're applying retrospectively to today, and you lose freedom, which when you're fighting a war on terrorism is especially prized. Um, fifth, uh, it's hokey, actually, when you look back, especially if it's for something that an administration long ago did, like uh, President Clinton actually, I didn't even know this, but apologized for the the coup in Iran, uh, he didn't do it, but Madeleine Albright did it, um, and the, and the uh, uh, installation of the Shah and the abuses that, that ensued. Um, and it just, to a lot of people, felt like a one-off. You know, it wasn't something followed up with any policy overtures. But also, it just felt so strange 40 years after the fact uh, for him to be apologizing. I happen to believe, and talk again in the discussion about what the alternative to non-remembering is, but a, a far better orchestrated conversation about that actually could have had far greater bearing uh, in Iran and perhaps even uh, more broadly in the Middle East. But instead, this was just a little, you know, one-off uh, apology given by Madeleine Albright at a lunch with Arab Americans in, in Washington, D.C., and it did get a lot of coverage in Iran, 
but nothing happened, again, on, on its heels. Um, but there is this fear that you sort of just, you know, Clinton got, became famous for his, um, you know, his apology. He also became famous for continuing to need to apologize, uh, which is also something to be avoided. Um, sixth, um, from the neocon perspective especially, or from a kind of more traditional hard power approach, you really don't want to look like a wimp. I mean, there is a strong constituency now, especially, um, but in general in this society, who believe that it's much better to be unpredictable, uh, to be feared, much more important, as Machiavelli said, to be feared than to be liked. Um, again, I would say it's more important to be respected uh, than to be either feared or liked, and, but that it is important actually to be feared and respected. Um, but, I mean, there is an ideological revulsion at the notion of responsibility taking. In other words, it's not an accident. It's not just that we turn over and people sort of forget or they, they're just constantly focusing on the moment. There is an actual belief that this is good for the United States um, because if you start actually sort of, you know, poking holes in what you've done before, then you, you actually look as if you're, you're um, you know, a, an administration uh, marred by malaise, uh, to use President Carter's uh, term. But the... I think the, the issue, and maybe, maybe we can stop here and, and, and talk about sort of how to, how to undo, uh, how, to, how to remember without over-remembering, and how also not to, ch not to turn an apology actually into the quickest route to forgetting, which is what President Clinton, I think, did often. I mean, you do an apology, okay, I'm done. <laughs> you know, those 800,000 Rwandans, well, I went, I apologized, what more do you want, you know? Um, the question is, can there be, once you have committed a mistake, once you have, as, as the war in Iraq again was predicated on a mistake, once you have done something, even if you don't believe it was a mistake, uh, like back Saddam Hussein in the 1980s, I don't think there's uh, anybody actually in this administration who would say that that was a mistake. What they will say is, see Iran, you know, it was a different time, it was a different world. But there are people out there who, for whom we have, we have sneezed and a tidal wave has engulfed uh, their universes. So this matters for them and for moral reasons in that they, you actually, when you go around the world, there are people who are just carrying the weight um, of these atrocities, sometimes in a very personal way, having lost people, um, uh, but often uh, really also just in a, in a kind of, in a way of uh, sort of related to their dignity. Um, but crucially now, I think what you're seeing in a globalized world is the way in which not only for moral reasons, but actually for strategic reasons, these kinds of, this tally, this running tally of backtracking or perceived deceit or war making for, you know, other reasons far from human rights and, and democratization and so on, but our self-interest being played out in, in, in sometimes very harmful ways, but actually means that when we come into a room and try to get what we want, we are carrying the weight of that history. And that has affected threat perception. It's one of the reasons that people see the United States as a greater uh, rogue nation, uh, that, you know, uh, a rogue and, and greater threat to international order than bin Laden even. Um, but it really also, uh, it, it affects the, the credibility and the legitimacy of what it is that we're pushing for in the moment. I mentioned Sudan, and, and maybe John and I now can, can talk a little bit about some of the contemporary crises that this administration is, is facing. But the Bush administration has done uh, more on Sudan generally, and more on Darfur, which is where a million people now are in danger of dying in the next three months, um, uh, where massive ethnic cleansing campaign has taken place, where the Sudanese government has armed Arab horsemen, uh, herdsmen, militias, and basically told them to, and, and worked with them to destroy black life. If you, if you are black, a black Muslim in this area, 
It's uh, a, a, a guaranteed uh, sentence uh, of ethnic cleansing and a possible sentence of, of rape or murder. Um, but the Bush administration is owning this issue. It actually is. I mean, relative to everyone else, which isn't saying much, but it is willing to denounce it. It's not running away from, from describing the mortality that is likely uh, imminent. It is not running away from using terminology like ethnic cleansing, even saying that it borders on genocide. I mean, quite a candor. President Bush has called uh, President Bashir uh, several times to complain about the horrors. Colin Powell has been on the phone. Um, but we are uh, completely mistrusted uh, internationally uh, when it comes to what we're up to. I mean, again, as I indicated earlier, the assumption is there must be something else going on. Um, so in addition to the danger of ahistoricism, I guess I would also just close in suggesting that our a la carteism is also uh, gravely detrimental. The idea that we can get what we want when we want it and just show up as if the torture in Iraq, for instance, or the war in Iraq as a whole, or Guantanamo, or the ICC, um, that those are sort of separate issues, when in fact those issues are, are the composite of what people see of America. They don't see the classrooms here. They don't see the diversity of opinion. Um, they see uh, the output. They don't see intentions, even, when the intentions are good. All they see is behavior uh, and often uh, chaos in the wake uh, and, and tragedy in the wake of, of American power. Not always, again, but enough to where one does, I think, have to think far more carefully about what we do, again, in the wake um, of uh, uh, policies uh, that have had grave bearing uh, on people's lives. And let me just say one uh, final thing uh, in closing, because I think this is a sort of, uh, in a sense, cold water on myself. Um, one person who is big on institutional learning uh, before he went into the, the Bush administration was Don Rumsfeld. And before he uh, took the post of defense secretary, he compiled um, a handout, uh, incredibly uh, sort of thick, <laughs> Uh, handout of you know dozens of pages. I think it was um, sort of 30 pages of lessons uh, that he had distilled from 40 years of service. So this is just me pouring cold water on myself in terms of the limits of learning, because uh, some of the learning has to go on on the job. Um, but also to suggest that that there are different uh, audiences for learning. One is the institution. Two is the public. Three is the people who have been affected. Rumsfeld in this lesson learning was focusing mainly on the institution that he was about to enter. So he circulated what, he, what became known as Rumsfeld's Rules, and these were insights, again, from 40 years of service, and I'll just close with, um, with these three, uh, three of the, you know, 100 rules that he included. Uh, one of the rules was it's easier to get into something than to get out of it. Uh, second rule was don't divide the world into them and us. And the third is visit with your predecessors from previous administrations try to make original mistakes rather than needlessly repeating theirs. Um, these rules were posted on the Pentagon website when Rumsfeld took office, um, but they have since been removed. Thank you. Now we're going to ask Dr. Jen Schumann to ask Samantha Power a couple of questions, and then we'll take questions from the audience. Samantha, oops, thank you for your remarks. Um, I actually wanted to give you a little bit of a breather and just ask the audience a question. Um, what do President Bush, John Kerry, 
Osama bin Laden, the Dalai Lama, and Samantha Power have in common? You forgot the Pope. The Pope, of course. One of the 100 Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. And <laughs> although I'm somewhat making light of this, I just want to say how proud I am to have Samantha here and, and delighted to have her here in the Midwest. And she serves as an inspiration to many, many people, myself included. And it, it's truly amazing what someone can do um, with the power of a pen and um, <laughs> the will. Um, a will of steel. So um, I wanted to start things off uh, with a sort of a thought question for you and ask you um, if William Proxmire were living today uh, in, in the Senate chamber or on the Senate floor, what would he say? Would he say <laughs> the same thing that he's always saying? Or how, how, would, how would William Proxmire 20 years hence um, look at the world now and what it's become? I mean, Proxmire actually is alive, um, but he's, um, it's a very sad story. He's, he's got Alzheimer's and, and uh, so he's living in a home in, in Washington, but he was an extraordinary character, as, as some of you know from, from my book. He gave 3,219 speeches on the Senate floor about the need to ratify the Genocide Convention. For 19 years, he gave a speech a day. Um, and I think it's a really important question, actually, because one of the things I didn't talk about, um, I didn't talk about lots of things, but um, despite seeming to talk about everything, uh, is the way that the checks uh, that we depend on in this country domestically, um, I mentioned, of course, they don't exist uh, formally for foreign policy, but the need for the proximaries of the world. I mean, where was the Congress in advance of the war in Iraq? You know, there was a tremendous deference to the executive branch in the wake of a, you know, of a, a strike on the United States. It's quite typical if you look at American history that, um, you know, in a, a period of emergency, that deference exists uh, often. Um, but it was a level of uncritical uh, thinking, and also the press, I have to say. Uh, you know, the, there was a piece in the New York Review of Books um, a month or two ago by Michael Massing looking at uh, the ways in which the New York Times and, and the Washington Post and others, but the New York Times in particular, uh, downplayed any contrary information on the weapons of mass destruction issue. You know, refusing, when they ran a story saying, well, maybe those pipes that, you know, they're saying, you know, were used to make, you know, God knows what kind of weapons, Maybe they were just pipes, in fact. We have, you know, three intelligence sources saying they were pipes. Uh, and those stories, when they ran, were, um, you know, the tone was very, very critical, very skeptical, and they all often ran on, on A-17. I think Proxmire, what he would be doing is he would be, he always believed in international law uh, in a way that has become so passe, you know, it's sort of like, ugh, you know, I mean, who could possibly be for the United Nations today? Or who could, who could, you know, even I am for the International Criminal Court, but when, you know, if I'm advising, I was advising Wesley Clark in a short-lived uh, run for the presidency. <laughs> Wesley Clark, the Red Sox, uh, genocide, I don't, I don't pick um, the winners. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but even I did not advise him to urge outright ratification. You know, I urged him to argue that we should re-enlist, that we should do away with the Hague Invasion Clause and the bilateral treaties and the things I mentioned tonight. Um, 
but no one, there's a, the desire to belong um, and to stay relevant is so great among advocates, among people within government, and on, within, uh, among people on the Hill. And it's funny you mentioned Parks because I haven't thought about him in a while, but he is the reminder of how things actually move in America is that someone doesn't always think about just getting invited to the next meeting, but they actually think about staking out the appropriate position in their mind, which then moves the debate, you know, so you get something that may be in between. When everybody kind of crowds around the center, this, and the center when you have both houses of, uh, of uh, Congress controlled by one party and the executive branch and then the courts, of course, increasingly uh, the product of, of uh, a two-house uh, and executive branch single-party system, um, you know, the center is going to move uh, very, very far. So, you know, I think he would, he would have been against the war, certainly, um, you know, uh, with uh, Robert Byrd, you know, who now stands as the, as the really the single voice, the, the prophet or the Cassandra ahead of that war, understanding the stakes in a way that I think few of us did. You mentioned a little bit about President Clinton's apology to the Rwandan people. And... Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and tell us more about uh, the impact that it had, what motivated it. Um, it's a great question because it's the, it's actually, I, you know, I sort of said that people are afraid to seem hokey because they don't want to seem like Clinton. And, and I, w <laughs> I didn't like the apology much. Uh, I thought it was uh, lawyerly. What he said to the Rwandans in, in uh, February of 1998 was, uh, it may surprise you here, even those of you who lost members of your family, but day after day after day, there were people like me sitting in offices who didn't fully appreciate, didn't fully appreciate uh, the depth and the speed of the unimaginable, unimaginable uh, terror which engulfed you. That was what he said. And um, I almost called my book actually People Sitting in Offices because I thought... <laughs> It was a great, would have been a great title, but they didn't like it. But, um, but he, you know, I just thought this was just like I didn't inhale, I didn't have sexual relations with that woman, that it was just this parsing, you know, didn't fully appreciate, can't say you didn't know, because all these years after the Holocaust, can't say that anymore with the internet, um, unimaginable, you know, that there was a way in which he was diffusing responsibility. Well, so I, like, critique it line by line and, you know, you know, I think it came out of uh, some guilt and, and also politics. People thought that it was good politics. I mean, he cares a lot about his legacy and about being loved. So some combination of having a conscience in there, um, but also really having an eye to history. So I critiqued it. I thought it was a disaster. And, you know, this was before I was thinking about amnesia. And so I wasn't thinking about compared to what. You know, I wasn't comparing it to other sort of presidents and what they'd done or allowed. And, and then I went to Rwanda, and I was totally humiliated. <laughs> Because every Rwandan I met could quote, just like I can, but, you know, it's a hell of a lot more meaningful coming from them, but verbatim that speech. And they just couldn't believe that an American president would come to Central Africa and tell them that he should have done more. They just couldn't believe it. So they've named streets after him in, in Kigali. I mean, it just shows you, like, the scraps um, in a way that people would take. Well, was, all I could focus on was that he was in the country for, um, you know, I think it was 32 minutes. The, the, the engines of Air Force One never stopped running. You know, it was a, it was a parachute, you know, mission. Um, but it just, again, there is a desperation out there, and I, I hope it still exists. I mean, you know, the, the Bush administration, I think, has done a lot of damage. It's going to take some doing to get to that place where there's that ripeness, again, to hear 
American words and to take them at their at their face. But but it really it was quite uh, for me very humbling because and that's why at the end I was saying there are these different audiences for for reckoning. I mean, there's a, there is something that has to be done domestically also with Iraq in terms of the poor planning and the, and the speciousness of the, the reasons that were given and an, and an accounting. And these commissions are a beginning of that. But there's something else out there, you know, which is these other people. And they often, the audiences often need very different things. But, but, but the first step is caring that they need anything. Um, and that we need to restore, uh, you know, it's a, you know the, uh, People at the University of Chicago don't watch television, which is a problem when I invoke. <laughs> they don't have television. Uh, but uh, there are these commercials for V8 uh, tomato juice where, where people are kind of, they're walking slanted, like they, they take the camera and they kind of put it on its side, so they're walking along, and then they drink a V8, and then they're straight. You know, so they drink the V8, and then they're suddenly walking upright. Yeah, it wouldn't go over well at University of Chicago. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, the... Apology for the Rwandan survivors that I talked to and for the government officials too, but served the function of, of the V8 for them. It was like, wow, like we were not whole because we our humanity had been violated and totally trampled upon. Um, and then it gets violated every day that no one tells us it matters. And then he, what he comes and he, and he sort of we're walking upright again. Like we feel we an American president thought we mattered enough to come and say he was sorry. So President Bush went on Arabic television. And I was struck by yeah, you know, how quickly this is all unraveling uh, for him uh, domestically, because it obviously is a horror. But what are your thoughts on him actually having to do that? Well, I, you know, what I was going to do if I'd been, um, uh, if I hadn't been at the Chicago White Sox game today, uh, was uh, was to go through and and look at. More in, more in greater detail, I don't know that anybody would have wanted it, but I, I would have been interested in just the road to where he got in terms of the apology. I mean, you know, at first, of course, the report is circulating, then he knows about it, he reads the summary, then he's continuing, as I said, to talk about torture chambers and how we've closed down torture chambers, and, and even using the language of sexual violence, which it was already evident was a major feature of the torture that went on uh, uh, by American military police and intelligence people. Um, so, but he didn't, you know, he he came up short uh, of an apology in those interviews. I mean, I thought it was, you know, we, we already, we're, people are obsessing now in Washington about our public diplomacy. I mean, they read the same polls we do. You know, they see that bin Laden uh, is seen as a lesser threat than George Bush. You know, they see that, um, you know, that 80% uh, of Spaniards, um, believe that uh, that the Bush administration isn't actually fighting a war and doesn't believe it has a terrorist threat, but is just using that as an excuse to round up, um, you know, Muslims. Or, I mean, they, there's stuff out there, that, but they're reading the same polls. So on the one hand, he goes on the television networks in an effort to kind of acknowledge that constituency out there, and yet, you know, he he's just not the type to be, he's not Clinton in that sense, in terms of knowing how to do the trembly lip and the responsibility taking and the and the parsing and giving people what they want. I mean, just Clinton grew up wanting every single, I, I'm similar, but wanting every single person in the room to love him. And he learned how to just, to, I don't know, Bush, I don't know if he was not thinking in those terms or he just has a kind of, he's not connected in that way. Um, I don't think domestically uh, either in certain regards, although he, you know, he plays a lot better uh, in the red states than 
on the East Coast and, and, the, and even the West Coast. But, but I think you, you can see him moving as, you know, he tried one thing, insufficient. Polls say, eh, <laughs> next thing, you know, insufficient. Polls say, no, you know, and, and every day you could see the articles, you know, talking about the precise nature of his language. It's amazing how carefully his language was parsed, um, you know, in the Arab world. But the fact that he had to be kind of dragged into, or the perception was kind of dragged into commissions, you know, the, dragged to an apology, you know, it took a week for him to apologize. And now the big Rumsfeld stain, of course, and that's why I do want to stress that an apology can be the quickest route to wanting something to go away rather than a real beginning of a reckoning. Um, but now, of course, what they focus on is, well, but where is the responsibility taking really? And, and, and how do we make a break? How, whatever you think about Rumsfeld's, his authority in the chain of command or what he should have done, part of it is just, again, about this constituency issue is that you have to create the appearance of responsibility taking um, which isn't simply, I mean, most of Bush's apology was not even, I'm sorry for what we did, we, and, and taking, acting as if it was part of his problem, but it was, I'm sorry that you didn't see the true nature of the American people. But that's different. <laughs> um, you know, and I mean, I, you know, I spent a lot of time lately with Robert McNamara thinking about this apology thing, and he does something quite similar, you know. Um, and I think he's obviously reckoned more than, than many of his generation, but he says, um, I'm, I'm sorry we made mistakes and that those mistakes cost lives. For him, I think he feels, as somebody who isn't the president, to, 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 to you know, apologize for the Vietnam War feels to him off, but also I don't think he can deal with the demons that he would face if he had to do that. Um, so it's a great question because Bush you see an, a version of what I'm talking about, but it's again, it's this idea that we check the apology box rather than thinking systemically about how to create clear breaks with policies that are now so discredited and undermined um, by the moral and, and, um, you know, uh, and truth slippage. That's so. interesting that you mentioned in your talk how you can no longer, one can no longer say, I didn't know, or a leader can no longer acknowledge it. However, it's still apparently quite, one is quite able to say I was just following orders. Right, amazing. Um, and I find that somewhat shocking. Um, but again, failure to study the lessons of history. Um, I'm struck by the parallel in, in my own profession about acknowledgement of error. And uh, hmm. medicine has had a long and rich history of uh, suppressing uh, error or um, not wanting to acknowledge uh, wrongs uh, committed, errors of omission, errors of commission, errors with perhaps malicious intent. Um, but that culture glacially is changing. Uh, perhaps, again, out of fear of lawsuits or things, people are finding or um, policies changing that if finding if people actually own up to error that patients and families are more responsive and actually less likely to sue uh, in uh, a culture of thing. honesty and openness. So it uh, seems too bad it, it can't also change in the political arena. No, I saw, I mean, there's, there's studies. It's, it's, I, I found that so profound that for years the lawyers, again, were at the, at the shoulder of the, uh, the elbow of the doctor saying, whatever you do, even if you cut off the right leg instead of the left, like, don't acknowledge that it was a mistake, don't acknowledge you didn't. Like, well, but it was the right instead of the left. How do I not acknowledge? You're going to get sued. You know, I know I'm caricaturing your profession. Uh, but, uh, but 
And then they show these studies that people who do acknowledge are so much less likely to get sued than those who treat the patient like we treat, I think, citizens around the world, like they're dumb or like they're not watching. I mean, people are keeping score, you know, individually in the way that you're suggesting and abroad in ways, I mean, they're, they're over-remembering. You know, they're not moving on with their own lives and, and so obsessed with, you know, injustices done, uh, carried out against them. But I... But I actually have some faith that there was something similar. If you talk to them, what they want most is to be recognized as mattering and, and as being human. Now, that's not to say that some won't sue in some distant court someday or whatever. But I think what they're really looking for is the very thing that I mentioned in, in Bush's national security strategy, which is dignity, which is what they feel is denied them in the act and then several times over uh, in the non-acknowledgement. So it's a great parallel.